strap. Welcome to On the Verge of Podcast. Here we'll explore the world of politics and policy and focus on how tech companies can navigate the politics of disruption. Here are your hosts, the founders of Verge, Josh Secker and Scott Gerber. So today we have our third episode of the On the Verge of podcast. We are really lucky to have um, a guest with us, uh, Jim Hawk, who's one of the true good guys in politics uh, and now works in uh, global investment. He talks about what's going on on the Hill. He talks about uh, several things like the CHIPS Act and the infrastructure funding that um, the Department of Commerce uh, has become central to. And most importantly, he gives us some predictions about who will be the next Speaker of the House and who will be in the Super Bowl. Uh, great interview. Uh, love Jim and uh, one of the smartest guys in politics that we know. Josh, what did you think? Um, I thought it was great. Uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of knowing Jim for more than 20 years. Jim is an American first and a Democrat second. And he truly believes that government can be a catalyst to solve our nation's biggest challenges. Um, really enjoyed talking to him about today's political and economic climate. So take a listen. Uh, please let us know if you have any feedback. And uh, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Jim Hawk. Sounds true. They say that politics ain't beanbag, whatever that means, but our guest today has proven that over the course of a 25-year career in Washington, that you can be effective while still living up to and consistent with your values. His name is James Matthew Hawk. Jim was the second person I met in Washington. He's one of the godfathers of Verge. He was press secretary for Dianne Feinstein of California, chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker. Along the way, he wrote a beautiful book, about his father's experience on the Los Angeles Rams in the 1950s, first called Hollywood's Team and later retitled as Father on the Line, and all the proceeds have gone to support inner-city youth in Los Angeles, so go out and buy it right now. He's on the board of the Georgetown McCourt School of Public Policy, and he currently serves as Senior Vice President External Affairs at PSP Partners, a global private investment firm led by Penny Pritzker. Jim is a Rams fan, so we know there's no accounting for taste, and he's an overall match. And we are so lucky to have uh, Jim on the On the Verge of podcast. Welcome, Jim. Awesome to be here, Scott and Josh. It's a pleasure to join you guys today. I look forward to the conversation. We look forward to it, too. So let's start on the political front. You, I think, like us, were somewhat surprised by the outcome of the November election. What do you think the big message or the big takeaway of the election? I think a few uh, observations, Scott. Um, it's a great question. I think first, the rational middle uh, is speaking loudly and spoke loudly in November. Um, you know, the nation is still healing over COVID, right? We had this massive hundred, hundred year event uh, that had lots of implications socially, economically, culturally, um, politically. Um, and I think a few other things, pe people don't like election deniers. They like people who speak the truth. And, you know, the folks in the middle who who decided a lot of these races where they were fought 
um, albeit, you know, states like California, Florida, and, uh, you know, Texas and other places, large states, um, and New York especially, um, Democrats didn't show up. That's a whole other question, I think, that needs to be addressed and why, right, when you don't engage voters. Um, and I think uh, a few other things. Trump has less power than people think. Um, he proved toxic in a lot of these races. You know, Mitch McConnell was right. Candidates matter. And the fact that the Democratic, uh, the Senate is still in Democratic hands is still, I think, I think it's a good thing for the country. It may be showing my bias. Um, I was talking to a friend with a, a political organization, uh, a centrist political organization the other day, and they, they have a, a program that they were going to have funded over multi years to deal with election denying and, and election security. And good news is he reported every race that they looked at, they won. Um, Secretary of State's governor's races, that's a good thing. Um, another observation is like, look, I think both parties have to get their act together. Um, Josh Ecker is a big fan of SNL. And, you know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember in 1988, the Dana Carvey and John Lovett skit, you know, during the presidential debate between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis of, you know, George Bush is rambling, you know, played by Dana Carvey. John Lovitz looked over and goes, how the heck am I losing to this guy? And I think, you know, sometimes I just look at the Democrats and say, how can you lose to this party that, um, you know, right now is doesn't seem to be rational in a lot of ways. And they have a, some serious structural challenges as well. So that's something that I think, you know, uh, the Democrats are going to look at as well. I think the other thing, interesting thing is, you know, Joe Biden, who I like and I'm a fan of, um, you know, I, I think people who didn't necessarily like Biden voted for Democrats in a lot of cases. And that's an interesting analysis why. Um, and I think it, one, it goes back to election denying, but I do think that some of the policies mattered in some of these places, the Chips and Science Act, the infrastructure, um, you know, I think his COVID leadership has been fairly steady. I mean, you can quibble on the margins, but I think, um, you know, getting vaccines out and that type of thing. And some of the clean energy and value stuff Young people just don't like you take away people's rights when you fight for people's marriages, um, you know, in a lot of different regards. Um, young people that, uh, you know, the polling I looked at showed 70, 80 percent approval for these things. Um, I know my own kids were just uh, astounded by some of the things that were that they just kind of took for granted um, societally. So I think you can extrapolate that. And I think just the one last observation, Scott, and again, a great question is, look, look, this is the first election we've had after COVID. And we've had, we just look at this from a, from our, from our, the business that I work in, we have a real estate part of our business and we look at trends of where people move and you look at massive transition going on. You're a Californian, Scott, Josh, you're from New York. Um, there's been massive movement in, you know, this, again, what I said, a hundred year event to Florida, especially from the Midwest, from, from Illinois, from Michigan, but Californians to Arizona, um, one COVID impact, but also the high cost of housing in a lot of these blue states. So that's that's also um, you know an impactful thing. I mean, nine, nine, 900,000 Democrats in Florida did not show up. I think the Democratic Party should ask why, what happened down there, right? Did, were they not engaged? Was it, um, they liked DeSantis policies? So anyway, I think there's a lot of questions that, come from your question that I think analysts smarter than me will address in the next couple of weeks and months as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, I hope the the signal is that we start to solve some big problems and cut out some of the BS of this, you know, um, you know, media industrial complex that is an anger business now. 
with minute-to-minute ratings um, on, on all the cable networks, and I don't think that's healthy for democracy. Well, let's spin it forward. We are going from um, Congress and White House controlled by one party to divide a government uh, with Democrats having a 51-49 majority in the Senate, the Republicans having a razor-thin majority in the House, which may or may not prove to be governable. Um, what do you think is going to happen in Congress? Do you think they'll be able to get uh, policies that are important to the American people uh, pushed across the line, or do you think it's going to resort re- return to the period of gridlock that we've sort of seen in the past? I, I think the short answer is it's going to be really hard to get any big policy changes done in the next two years. You know, historically, and Josh knows I'm a history nerd. If you look at, you know, second term, second second two years of presidencies, usually most of the policy activities in the first two years when they have that policy window, um, you know, uh, from the election. Um, I do think that the divided House, um, you know, having the House in Republican hands, whatever that means, if it's Kevin McCarthy or or Donald Trump or whomever is the is the speaker leads to, you know, somewhat of a gridlock situation. Um, you know, I'm hoping, you know, there will be, though, you know, in that <laughs> I'm an optimist. So I'm hoping that there will be some heads down policy work that, um, you know, on some some big important things like immigration. Is is there a compromise that can be had there, um, you know, to deal with um you know, the fact that there's dreamers to deal with the fact that we're off trend when you just look at the economy, four to five million off trend in the last few years for legal immigrants. Right. And that's a huge fuel for our economic growth. Um, and so, you know, how do we how do we address that? How do we make it easier for people to come, people to stay? Um, obviously, the flip side of that is training American workers and giving them the, the, the skills to compete. But border security and and for the life of me, I don't get why we just don't go back and look at the 2013 bill, which passed in overwhelming majorities, which had the most massive security infrastructure and and technology infrastructure ever put forward on the border, as well as some really smart, uh, you know, visa and other policies that would frankly make us more competitive and, you know, um, you know, give a path to citizenship for the 11 million people that aren't going to go anywhere that are going to remain in this country. Right. So, um, you know, that, that, that I would hope, but, you know, maybe I'm a pie ad optimist to, to quote Josh Ecker. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't ever think I said optimist. I think I just said, pie-eyed. just pie eyed. That's fair. That's fair. But, you know, I think the big part too, there's been some massive policy change, Scott, which you kind of laid out in your first question, infrastructure chips, you know, the, the biggest investment in clean energy in our lifetimes, right, ever, um, there's massive implementation challenges there, right? And they have to get, government has to build trust with people, right? Frankly, it's a, it's a <laughs> when business leaders have more trust in government, you know, uh, we have a problem. And so, you know, government has to ensure to the American people that are going to spend their, you know, taxpayers' money wisely, do it effectively, do it efficiently, and make sure it's done equitably across the country. So I think that's, a really important uh, challenge over the next two years. Um, uh, Commerce Department, where I came from, um, Secretary Armando, I think, is doing a terrific job. I'm part of a mentoring program that she's created that brings in, you know, former officials to work with folks, and and she's all about implementation, right? So she's all about making sure that this massive infusion of money is getting sp- spent wisely. Well, we have a client that says. Um, you know, what Congress is, does is great, but implementation is everything. So we couldn't, couldn't agree more. 
let's talk about um, Secretary Raimondo. Uh, let's talk about the CHIPS Act. Um, she's got to disperse some $52 billion to incentivize the domestic production of microchips, um, semiconductors uh, in the U.S. If you were sitting um, as her chief of staff, giving her advice, how would you say, uh, what would you recommend to her so that can be done fairly, so it can be done equitably, uh, so it can be done in a way that the benefits are felt across the nation? I think a few things. One is that keep doing what she's doing. She's laying out a strategy. They've hired really good people. Ronnie Chatterjee, her chief economist, is is the quarterback, if you will, for the CHIPS implementation part of it. He's an astounding young leader. Um, he sits in both hats. He sits both at the NEC now, National Economic Council, and in the Commerce Department. So, you know, uh, what I didn't recognize when I was in the administration before I came in was how small the White House staff is and where the implementation staff are in the agencies, right? And so it's really important to get that that strategy and then on the execution side, right? And, you know, everyone kind of, as former Secretary Penny Pritzker will say, like getting all the elephants up on the stools at the same time, you know, in kind of coordination, that's really important from, a, from an implementation part of it. So, and then, you know, hiring is huge, right? Making sure she has the right people. It's not only... You know, the, the um, CHIPS Act, Scott, it's 50 plus billion for broadband. It's 10 plus billion for economic development. I mean, you're talking about an agency of $10 billion annual budget that's basically had a surge of funding, right? That will become one of the most important agencies across the federal government in terms of, um, you know, leaving its footprints on our economy for the next 10 to 20 years, right? So, you know, the next year for them is really important. So I think just keep doing what they're doing. We've had a lot of conversations with them. They're really smart to reach out to experts all over the place, including Republican leaders as well, right? And so, you know, Gina's a, a very bipartisan, you know, person. I think we need more of that. She's taken some arrows from the left for it, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, keep doing what she's doing. And then also your, your last point about equitably, they're also looking at like the regions that are left behind, right? Unfortunately, you know, in this turbocharged economy that we've had because of all the, the technology, um, you know, impact and, and, and infusion over the last couple of decades, the, the benefits, beneficiaries are the three of us and many more people around the world, around the country and around the world. There's a lot of people for a variety of reasons, whether it's, um, you know, uh, geographically or, or economically or, um, you know, education wise have been left behind and we need to make sure we, 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 we bring people along. Right. Because then that'll also help our politics and our policies um, be smarter, be better and make sure it's done in a, in a, again in an equitable way. Let's unpack that just a little bit more. Um, the inflation is near 40 years highs. The impacts on businesses are just starting to be felt. When you were there, you launched the Open for Business agenda, which was a great way to package uh, what the Department of Commerce does. It's a very big and sprawling department and people don't really understand its role. What do you think the Department of Commerce can do, the Biden administration can do to really help uh, businesses and individuals weather the storm uh, if we do head into a, a significant downturn? Well, I think a, a few things. One, I think just to do a quick um, uh, education session for your listeners for the Commerce Department, which I didn't realize, it really is a federated agency. It's got we used to call it the innovation agency, for example, because it has so many innovation equities, whether it's the patent and trademark office giving patents or, you know, NIST, which is the science and technology um, standards organization, which has five Nobel laureates creating some of the most dynamic science in, in the country. 
um, you know, the, the work that Alan Davidson and, and the broadband team at NTIA is doing to disperse all the, that, that digital infrastructure. So it, it's got a lot of equities. The Economic Development Administration, which disperses funds around the country to, again, get to that point of um, on skills training, on, work, on workforce, on um, regional economic development. That's a big priority. I talked to um, Secretary Alejandro Castillo yesterday about some of the projects she's working on and just you know, sharing some advice on, on that front. Um, but more broadly for the administration, I mean, I think they've done a fairly admirable, admirable job in a really tough economic environment. Um, there was a piece in the Wall Street, excuse me, the Wall Street Post this morning by Larry Summers um, talking about the job they've done on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, for example, like those, those key releases. Now it actually is going to make $4 billion of, of money because of the way they've they've structured it. That kept prices down probably 20, 30, 40 cents you know, per gallon, which is a big thing. Um, I do think they need to work on energy permitting reform. Um, there was also a big piece this morning. Uh, you know, it's it's astounding. We're, we're essentially surging all these clean energy uh, technologies, solar, wind to the grid, but the grid's not not up for it, right? So, um, you know, 10x, 20x that we're trying to put on the grid. And if we can't, it's basically a bottleneck of traffic. Josh has sat in the New York City traffic for his entire life growing up. And that's kind of what it is when it comes to energy. So like, you know, from, uh, I think the stat was from 2000 to 2010, um, you know, the bottlenecks have doubled, right? And that's because of a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think we really need to kind of surge some expertise. And and I think they're trying that from a regulatory standpoint, but Congress should see what they can do too. I know Joe Manchin is working on that as well. Um, but that would be some smart way to, 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 to also have some relief on the energy side, which is a big part of where we are. Um, but I also think too, that again, it goes back to my earlier point that the country's healing, the world's healing after COVID. Um, uh, I, I think we need to, the Fed is doing its job, um, but that's a very blunt instrument um, when you talk about rates. And I'm not sure it's only, this is a different period because we not only have, um, you know, a, a surge past COVID, which you, you know, we've moved from, you know, just in time supply chains to just in just in case secure supply chain, so that 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 it incorporates a lot of additional costs on the on, on companies, on communities, etc., and, and consumers. And at the same time, we've had a, a war that is just um, you know going on longer. It's having huge effect in energy markets. Vladimir Putin is messing with energy markets strategically um, to make it painful for the West. Um, so. We have to heal in that regard. I think the Biden administration is doing a good job. So, you know, this national security connected to economic security is, is uh, I think, is front and center. Um, and so there's a there's a lot of intersected and interconnected issues that uh, you know, we can talk more about. But and then uh, the but, fact that the unemployment rate continues to be so low is just such a unique situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you're still seeing some wage inflations, Josh. It's a great point. So. Um, that's a, you know, we're kind of in uncharted territory, you know, this is not your 1970s type inflation, right? And, you know, the word transitory got, you know, poo-pooed, but, you know, two years of transitory is actually, that is somewhat of a definition. So, you know, we all have very, very, in the social media world, we want immediate results, but this is going to take a little bit of time to heal. And, and the good news is that it feels like inflation by the end of next year will come down to, uh, to a little over 2%. You know, the question is, and talking to economists that I like and trust is like, is that the natural rate that we should be at? 
And even in that regard, should we be more at 3%, would that be better for our workers to Josh's point? So you have more of a natural rate um, and, and, and sort of a natural rate of wage inflation instead of kind of stagnant wage inflation, which frankly we had under the Obama administration, which was a huge challenge for us. You know, yeah. on, the, on the business side, what what are you seeing in terms of the impact of the interest rates? And, you know, we hear every day on the news calling for, you know, for a recession where people are just debating whether how shallow it's going to be. Um, but are you seeing those impacts on a, on a daily basis for, you know, the business owners you're working with and you're investing in the companies you're investing in? Yeah, I think, Josh, we're seeing it in a variety of ways. Just to give you the context um, for the listeners, our business, we're a global investment firm, but we primarily focus in three areas. One, advanced industrials to think kind of big big infrastructure projects. We have a water services company called Stormtrap, for example. Um, we have um, uh, our PSP growth side, which is essentially a venture capital firm that invests in technology companies, what we call business and technology services. And then our last business is um, our longest legacy business is called the Pritzker Realty Group. And it's, um, you know, a few billion dollars of holdings and of real estate uh, around the country, both from physical infrastructure to multifamily properties. So, you know, on our real estate side, Josh, we are definitely seeing it. Um, Multifamily growth is still happening, but, you know, some of our projects are, you know, commercial related projects and the commercial real estate sector has just been completely impacted by not only rates, but post COVID people just not coming back to the office in the, in the way they have before. So a lot of office buildings and office building owners looking at, you know, dual use, you know, triple use purposes, um, turning what was traditional office space, for example, into, you know, healthcare, um, you know, a doctor's office or stuff like that, just to kind of put it in real on the tech side, you know, people are kind of buck, buckling down, hunkering down. You know, VC money is slowing down. Um, we're in a lucky position because we we are well capitalized. So we are a company that can and we take a long, long term view so we, we can, um, you know, be be pretty strategic in situations like this. But we're seeing some of our smaller tech companies really have to watch their burn and and be careful. You know, you know, as Warren Buffett once said, when the tide goes out, you see who's not wearing clothes. And I think. You know, we're spending a lot of time coaching our executives of, uh, you know, how to how to manage through, you know, uh, I don't want to say crisis opportunity, but, you know, or environments, but challenging, you know, uh, environments. Um, so I think the lo- that's a long winded way of saying it depends. It depends on what sector you're in, what business you're in. Um, we're in a number of different businesses. You know, and the last thing I would say is on our infrastructure side, we're actually seeing, you know, pretty steady growth. Um, I think that's because really smart, big investment from not only the federal government, but state governments as well. That has been deferred maintenance, if you will, for, you know, I remember when Scott and I were working together on the Hill, we were talking about infrastructure and needing bigger spends on infrastructure 20 years ago, right? And we're finally starting to make, you know, what what is historically needed and um, from a percentage of um, what we should be spending in our economy. So let's end um, this, uh, this section with the prediction. Um, by by the time people will listen to this, the race for speaker will probably have been run. Who's going to be the new speaker of the house? I think it's likely going to be Kevin McCarthy, but I think you're going to see a lot of churn, right? You're going to see stock market react to a few days of ugliness. Um, I think they'll probably craft some deal. There's five holdouts, as I understand it. 
uh, we're doing a call with Takeem Jeffries this afternoon uh, on a different um, uh, issue, but um, I'm sure he's going to raise this. And the question that we'll get from um, some of our folks that we're talking to him are, are that question, Scott, of is there some kind of compromise that can be made where you can pick a more moderate Republican or a moderate Democrat that could be, um, you know, amenable or palatable to the majority of the 218 plus that you need. Um, but he's got a real challenge. You know, he's got a real challenge with his caucus. And I don't think it necessarily reflects where the country is in his caucus. And so that's something that the Republican Party to lead is going to have to reconcile, right? The Democratic Party, and I think Congress has to do a little bit of that as well. Um, you know, not not as not as much if I try to take off my partisan hat um, as a moderate Democrat, but um, it's it's uh, I think it's going to be Kevin McCarthy. There you go. You heard heard it here first. Uh, one other question for you, Jim: Did you go out and get yourself Donald Trump trading cards, the NFTs that he put up for sale uh, last week? <laughs> I did not. No, it's too bad. I did not. Those things are collector's items. They're just going to grow and grow in value. I did when I was 18 years old, 17 years old, Scott. I was on his yacht. You guys have heard this story. I haven't heard this story. Yes. I hear. Uh, my father's cousin was the uh, CEO of Hawaiian Airlines and then became the CEO of the Trump Shuttle. And so on a Saturday afternoon, we were living in New Jersey at the time and uh, my dad's cousin calls him and said, Hey, the Trump's just bought this large passenger yacht. You can come have a tour of it. And so we walk around the boat and, uh, I'm a kid, I'm a knucklehead. And, uh, the last room we see is their disco and the captain turns the lights on in the ceiling and the strobe lights come on and every little light in the ceiling is a picture of Donald Trump. So I think he should have invested in lights for himself rather than. <laughs> All right, let's turn to what's really important. The Los Angeles Rams. Dude, oh, what happened this year? I was having a good day until you yeah. asked the question. Uh, 14 different starters on the offensive line. It starts and ends there, Mr. Gerber. You can't have a successful franchise in the NFL. Ask Josh Zecker as a long-suffering New York Giants fan. He knows the last few years they've gotten healthy this year. Well, I mean, at least the good thing is there's only about 15 Rams fans that have to be disappointed this year. <laughs> that is fair. That is fair. But you know what? They are still the reigning Super Bowl <laughs> champion. And I will take that for the next month and a half. <laughs> That's all you got. Who do you think is going to be in the Super Bowl? I think it's going to be the 49ers, the best defense I've seen in years. Um, if they can get some good enough quarterback play a Brock Purdy and I think the Buffalo Bills I just think there's something about that team that's magic so that's my prediction and I'm sticking with it and even though as a long Rams fan to, to predict the 49ers going to the Super Bowl as we call them I was taught to call them the 40 winers in my family that's really hard for me to do yeah well the lambs are are loved by many yes. as well all right um we end each uh each of our little pods with um um the musts must reads must watch must listen what what's on your bookshelf or on your podcast list or what are you watching that other people should watch um first books i'm uh i'm one of these like professional adhd people so if you look at my nightstand i have about 10 books on the side of my my bed and i like kind of toggle back and forth all nonfiction. i'm actually really looking forward to the break of Deplugging from <clears throat> politics and business and reading the new Bell, Mel book, Mel Brooks book, all up, all about me. Huge fan of Mel Brooks, and it's his life story. So I'm excited about that. You know, the man who created Spaceballs and History of the World. Um, well, I went back and watched Blazing Saddles uh, 
a few months ago. Um, hilarious, but talk about a movie that couldn't get made in the same could, way today. It's could you know, not there things get, in there that you're just like, oh my god, I can't yeah, believe it's in there. Could not get made today, right? <laughs> have have you look, ever seen the comedian in Cars having coffee with Jerry Seinfeld and Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner? Yes, it's that, great. Where the two of them have dinner every had dinner every night. Um, it's pretty pretty great. It's fantastic. Uh, a couple other books, Scotty. Um, I just finished a book um, by Arthur Brooks, the former head of the American Enterprise Institute, called "Strength to Strength." And I'm 53. My wife is 53, and you know, it's 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 really about the stage of life post 50 and how you take in information when you're younger, and then how like you you accumulate knowledge. You know, post 50 is about sharing that knowledge, and you have you know, what your, your strengths change, right? You're not as quick, you're not as innovative, but you can distill information and, and wisdom is, is, um, easier to, uh, to use and, and leverage and, and share post 50. So it's a really interesting book. I highly recommend it. My wife thought it was a little, little downer in some ways, but Hey, that's, uh, that's necessary. Well, we'll, hey, add, we'll edit out that part where you outed Kelly's age, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> as somebody, the only person on this call who is under 50, I will say that being under 50 is still great. Josh, by the way, is very quick on the pickleball court these days. So it hasn't affected nice. it. I have, my sources have said that. And then just some shows we're watching and we just finished Bullet Train the other day, which is amazing on Netflix. And we finished The Crown, which I was, I was dragged into at the beginning and, said why are we watching this and actually really enjoyed it from a human perspective it's just that you create us what they call the system i just think it's fascinating um and uh and just watching too much football scott and josh to be honest with you then you have to watch prince harry and megan as well ah yes that might be a tough one i don't know but i because i trust you josh secker i will try mm -hmm. yeah well, we are so fortunate to have uh, Jim Hawk on the pod. We appreciate the time you've spent. You're one of the most thoughtful um, individuals working in the world of economic development, politics, policy today. And we appreciate your wit and wisdom and your insight. And thanks for coming on the pod. I'm great. so grateful to, to be here and honored you guys asked. And thanks for what you guys do. I know you work with companies daily and we, we all work together at one point. I know you guys care deeply about not just, you know, the work you're doing from growing your business, but really, you know, what you're doing to from an outcome perspective, right? Creating opportunity for people, not only for for your companies that you work with, but for families and communities, your own and others. So it's really cool. And I, I, I give you guys uh, kudos for that. Thanks, Jim. So, Scott, it's time for our most popular segment, the must-read or must-watch, and the must-miss. What do you have for this week? Well, I am obsessed about one thing right now, and that's nuclear fusion. There's just an incredible story in Wired that shows how... Um, how the promise of what's happened in the U.S. labs of putting uh, energy in through lasers and getting more energy out. Uh, when uh, In a world where we think about global warming and the impacts on our environment, this offers huge, huge promise. Uh, but this Wired story makes it clear that the, the actual uh, impact of this won't be felt for years, if not decades. 
if not more. So I encourage everybody to read it. It's mind blowing stuff. And remember that science is cool. What about you? Well, I, I took a look actually earlier this week at the list of the top movies and the top books of 2022. And I think I saw or read none of them. I think I'm stuck in a time warp. But one of the books uh, I want to I want to read over the break is called Cheap Land, Colorado, Off Gritters at America's Edge. Um, it's really about the um, disaffected areas of the country where technology has passed them by, people who are living outside the American mainstream in Colorado, in the Colorado Prairie. And um, I think there's a lot to learn from them. And I look forward to learning more over break. And do you have a must miss? Must miss for me is work stress. I plan to decompress, enjoy time with family and friends and recharge the batteries. And I hope all of you will as well. There you go. Well, we wish everybody has a wonderful holiday season. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Verge Strategies, you can follow us on LinkedIn at Verge Strategies and on Twitter at On the Verge Of. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Sounds true.